morning, brothers and sisters. Thought I'd uh, read the poem that has some indirect connection to me this morning. It's uh, one of my favorites. It's from a poet actually whose writing actually got me interested in poetry about 20 plus years ago, named Dana Joya, um, who started actually as a businessman, wrote poetry on the side, and now has uh, pretty much gone full-time poetry and teaching. So it's called Words by Dana Joya. The world does not need words. It articulates itself in sunlight, leaves, and shadows. The stones on the path are no less real for lying uncatalogued and uncounted. The fluent leaves speak only the dialect of pure being. The kiss is still fully itself, though no words were spoken. And one word transforms it into something less or other, illicit, chaste, perfunctory, conjugal, covert, even calling it a kiss betrays the fluster of hands glancing the skin or gripping a shoulder, the slow arcing of neck or knee, the silent touching of tongues, yet the stones remain less real to those who cannot name them or read the mute syllables graven in silica. To see a red stone is less than seeing it as jasper, metamorphic quartz, cousin to the flint, the Kiowa carved as arrowheads. To name is to know and remember. The sunlight needs no praise, piercing the rain clouds, painting the rocks and leaves with light, then dissolving each lucid droplet back into the clouds that engendered it. The daylight needs no praise, and so we praise it always, greater than ourselves in all the airy words we summon. So uh, I want to claim, of course, that promise, as I try to do every time I, I'm up here, of uh, Acts 1, where Jesus says, uh, we shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, and we will become witnesses. Even as we meet this day, this is a witness. Together, we witness that there is a God, and that he is real in our lives. So we are continuing through our reading and teaching from Proverbs, and here in chapter 6, the ESV titles this chapter as Practical Warnings. Buzzy, Fred, and I will be teaching from this chapter. Whereas it seems, by the way, the lots have fallen. Brett has become the teacher on sex for our church. I am becoming the one to teach on money or something related to that, as this passage is talking about debt. Uh, in the U.S., the average debt per citizen is about $90,000. And I don't want to tell you the amount of debt that the U.S. itself has. It's huge and it's overwhelming, so maybe we'll just ignore it like we do. But debt is certainly not a new thing, but is quite old. The first mention of monetary exchange, actually, I, want, I was kind of curious to find out. Where was the first, at least recorded, incidence of monetary exchange? was in Genesis 43 when Abraham purchased with silver his wife Sarah's gravesite. Um, there was an attempt to not have that happen, but Abraham was like, I'm going to pay you money for this gravesite. Uh, that passage isn't about debt. However, money is 
is kind of part of the example in this passage, and, but there are also deeper things than just money and debt. In my research and study of this passage, I came across the idea of Jesus, Jesus teaching about money. I mean, how I've heard it said that um, Jesus taught most about money of hell, which I found out isn't exactly true. He did talk quite a bit about money as well as hell, but he also talked a lot about food, which is kind of appropriate for our community, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, food and money. I think the best way to address these five verses in the chapter of Proverbs is to look at three things, the context, the meaning, and the creditor. The context is debt. Uh, The meaning is more than debt. And then the creditor is present and generous. The context is debt. The meaning is more than debt. And the creditor is present and generous. So, the context is debt. Uh, This is clear in the very first verse. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, or Sarah's version said, surety, and have given a pledge to for a stranger. The word security or surety means to basically commit to being insurance for someone else's debt. Now, this debt can be either in action or money or both. But the easiest way to imagine this, of course, is through the example of monetary debt. But being a surety in our day is usually associated with monetary transaction. Like when you co-sign on a loan with some, uh, somebody else, that's like being a surety. Though I personally have never experienced this myself, or even if I had, I wouldn't want you guys to know about it, as a realistic example of a surety is a bail bondsman. We know about bail bond, bails bondsmen. These are people who put up money for individuals who commit crimes and are put in jail and they need money for bail. The money is needed to get them out of jail, uh, by paying the bail. In this case, the debtor is the accused. The bondsman is the surety whose money is given for those who don't have, have it to pay and don't want to stay in jail while awaiting trial. Now, of course, when a person accused of a crime doesn't appear in court who has been given bail by a bail, bail's bondsman, what is activated are TV shows like The Fall Guy and the 1980, uh, from the 1980s and Dog the Bounty Hunter. That's where we get these shows. Do you remember The Fall Guy? It was great. Yeah, anyway. One observation about this characteristic of this passage is something I've said before, but it is enough, it is important enough that it bears repeating, and that is that God's word is vastly transcendent, reaching descriptions about unseen, though real truth that you can find in no other place in literature and religion. And yet God's word is also uniquely base, meaning real and physical. Uh, We also refer to it as incarnational. The Gospel of John chapter 1 says, And the word, referencing Jesus, God, the word, logos, that Greek word logos, as John uses it, became flesh. The word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. So, if our great God has deemed it fine to become physical flesh, body, not just soul, it is not hard for us as Christians to speak of not only the spiritual, but also the physical material of this world. In fact, we ought to lead in both. 
if we believe too much in the spiritual as predominant, as more important than the material, then we become Gnostics, a heresy in the history of the church. If we believe too much in the material, I think I forgot to start recording this, didn't I? But we have it on that, right? Uh, it'll be on YouTube. Okay. Should I just keep going? Sure. Okay. <laughs> Pardon. If we believe too much in the material as predominant, as important than the, uh, as more important than the spiritual, then we become basically selfish materialists, humanists who believe we are merely meat machines. The Judeo-Christian worldview is neither Gnostic nor materialist. Uh, one of our friend Stephen Kratz's favorite, and mine, who's become a favorite of mine, is a verse in Matthew eleven nineteen, which exhibits this. It says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Son of Man, in that verse, is a spiritual title. Eating and drinking physical activities, echoing communion, and later in the verse it says wisdom, which is, show me where wisdom is physically. It's kind of a esoteric, ethereal, unseen aspect. Nevertheless, we're taking a whole book here about wisdom. So we have the spiritual and the physical there. Jesus' teaching is essentially an example of the spiritual and physical is important. I submit to you the example of his parables. In any of his parables, he's certainly teaching a deep, unseen truth. At the same time, using physical, visible, sensuous examples to teach them. A farmer went out to sow. He is not saying that the deeper truth of the spiritual is more important than the physical. Jesus is saying together, these are true. It is how we humans live. We are neither disembodied spirits in machines made of blood and bone, nor are we only bone and blood compelled by the energy of hormonal liquids or kinetic electrical shocks rushing through our bodies. Jesus rose physically and spiritually from the dead. He is the first fruits of the new life, a life that he will soon return to give to us. Let me get practical here. How should, we, how should this look for our lives here? First, we should be, and this passage even talks about this. I mean, it's surety, and yet it's talking about wisdom and all these things, which I'll be getting into. First, we should be unafraid to talk about anything or learn about anything, whether we agree with it or not. If what we believe is true, take courage, brothers and sisters. Truth doesn't move. He can't. Therefore, why should we fear? The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans, What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who, or even what, can be against us? Who can be against us? Second, we should be the best at loving this world and those in it. For example, for loving this world, this notorious climate change stuff that we debate and get angry at one another about and uh, accuse each other of insensitivity. It's obvious that there are vast disagreements on this issue. 
as I'm sure within the bounds of our church body here there are as well. You want to start talking about it now? No? Good. Probably not wise right now. Whatever we think of this, we as brothers and sisters in Christ ought to be gracious, honest, and vigorous in our discussions about our views here, even in disagreement. Why? Because Christ supersedes any view. He unites us, not our views on this world. Also, however we agree or disagree on this issue, we should both agree that we should be good stewards of this world. God charged us to cultivate and protect it in the first chapters of Genesis. Third, as an example of this, that we can and should throw the best parties. Our years of having our Mardi Gras celebration is evidence of this. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Now, that doesn't mean uh, gluttonous, as he was accused of, or drunkenness, as he was accused of. He went to the parties of the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Now, I'm not saying that we should become tax collectors and prostitutes, but I am saying we should be willing to go to the parties. We should be willing to throw the parties. Let's not fear the spiritual or the physical. So that context is debt. The meaning is more than debt as well. It's point two. So these verses speak of debt, but they also speak of deeper things. It's more than debt. It speaks of pledges here. In verse one, the second part actually mentions one of the things that's deeper than debt. My son, if you have given your pledge for a stranger. So we're talking about more than just being a surety for someone else's debt. There's also a talk about pledges and oaths. How should we think about this? To answer that, I think we should read some passages from the Old Testament about oaths, Old and New Testament, that are given to us. I'll mainly stay with the Old here. In Numbers 30, verse 2, it says this, If a man vows a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Habakkuk 2.6 says, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Uh, Hosea 10.4, speaking of a disobedient Israel, says this, They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants so judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. That's a really interesting image. These are merely three scriptural examples of many more showing how important oaths or pledges are to God. He takes them seriously. I invite you to do a search, maybe on something a site like BibleGateway.com, for the words of oath or pledge. Maybe even promise or covenant. See the verses there. I did something like that for this, uh, for this sermon. There are not thousands of these verses, but there are enough for any of us to see the importance of the idea of pledges or oaths. I did that myself in preps, and as, my passage, as I was going through the passages, my eye was drawn to the differences between when I read uh, a human being or person made an oath, and then when God made an oath. Uh, the severity of the difference struck me, and um, 
I can, I have, and I will break oaths in my life. God, to my knowledge, has never broken an oath. So, deeper than just debt. It's deeper than debt in that it speaks of relationship. I want to point out that this, uh, it seems like a deeper meaning, uh, seems to address what appears to be a heartless attitude towards people in need. So here we have king, a king, Solomon in this case, a very rich dude, saying that we should not try covering or help cover someone else's debt. A rich guy saying, don't cover, anyway. So... Should we? Well, it's kind of, he's kind of saying that, yes and no. He's, what does this mean? Well, if you look at the first verse, it says, if you, if you have given your pledge for a stranger, it says stranger, though it says neighbor and other things. Uh, but it, there seems to be a difference between a stranger and a brother. Solomon is saying, don't rashly go into being a security or surety for a stranger. One you might have no knowledge of. And there are other parts of this passage that make you think that this stranger might have untoward machinations in mind. Like the word ensnared used by Solomon. And then in verse 5, it talks about a person as a hunter or a fowler. Hunters do not have good intentions for the hunted. And fowlers aren't necessarily looking to free their charges. If they did, they'd no longer be a fowler. So it is impossible. So it is possible that the stranger here might have had ill intentions. I'm not saying that it definitely is, but it kind of gives you that question. And finally, there is a difference between someone you know and someone you don't, a brother and a stranger. My brother Chris is no stranger to me. So the way I treat him is different than the way I would initially treat strangers. I shouldn't treat either with disrespect or hatred, but I would, by the nature of our relationships, uh, treat one differently than the other. You might say, I'm parsing words here, and I'm saying, yes, I am. There is meaning to words and different meaning to different words. The definition of stranger is different than the definition of brother. Both are loved by God, and both have different ways that love is shown, depending on the definition. In fact, in different parts of Scripture, we are shown to treat them differently at different times. How you treat brothers, how you treat strangers. The Bible seems to indicate that we are to preference brother brothers over strangers at times, and vice versa. It says, if a brother comes to you, you should see what they need. In uh, Corinthians, Paul talks about expelling a brother and treating strangers more respectfully because of what they do. Look it up in 1 Corinthians 5. But regardless of definitions here of stranger and brother, who of us here, and anyone listening now or later, would say it is a good thing to become a cosigner, a surety, the coverer of a complete stranger's debt. Stranger wants in. I need somebody to cover your debt. 
I'll do it. I have no idea who you are. No one would say that's a good idea, I don't think. Let me just say quickly here that the idea of not being a surety with strangers does not nullify uh, the obvious encouragement, the commands, and admonitions of God to be aware and take care of the needs and plights of the poor. Just because Solomon's saying that here, he's not saying don't take care of the poor. This idea of being aware of the needs of the poor is represented in Scripture by taking care of the orphan and the widow. A good passage, which was very convicting, that I came across through my uh, one of my commentaries about this issue, is Deuteronomy fifteen seven through eleven. I suggest you write that down and read it, and I want you to feel even more conviction about it than I did. <laughs> maybe even meditate on how and really embrace that conviction because it, it is anyway I think the bottom line here for this passage and how we approach people in need is to do it wisely not with flippant flippancy or thoughtlessly always having in mind wanting your neighbor whether a stranger or a brother or a sister to become a better person which is ultimately found in the gospel in a relationship with God through Christ. We should know what we are getting into and exercise wisdom, which brings me to the last of the deeper things, which is wisdom. Know what we're getting into. Remember, <clears throat> this whole book of Proverbs, which these five verses are located in, is about acquiring, developing, exercising wisdom. And as the saying goes, wisdom is knowledge rightly used. I don't think Solomon is saying here never become a surety for anyone. I don't think he's saying that necessarily. He is saying don't become a surety for a complete stranger. And remember, strangers don't remain necessarily strangers. If you have a growing relationship with them, a stranger can become a friend. And a friend can become a brother or sister. And again, knowing becomes a part of that. And wisdom is related to knowledge and knowing. Better assurity, better assurity of a brother than one of a stranger. But even brothers can fail in paying debts. Let me address this idea of the begging part of this passage where you see here where it says, go hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. <clears throat> I wanted to comment briefly here uh, about this admonishment that Solomon gives his son about going to your neighbor without sleep and basically bugging them to relent and letting you off the surety. I'll be honest here. I, I really have not really thought about this enough to really draw any conclusions about what this would mean for us here now. But I will say this about this section. Jesus used a similar idea in the parable of the persistent widow. That came to my mind when I read this passage. That's found in Luke 18, 1 through 8, where the widow approaches an unrighteous judge so often about some, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice. But uh, she, she approaches him so much about an unjust adversary that the judge just finally relents. Okay, she's bugging me so much. I will give her justice, and she gets it. These two ideas sound similar. So I'm wondering if there's some relationship between that passage where don't give your eyes, 
a lint, you know. That's all I'll say about that. Last point. The context is debt. The meaning is more than debt. And now the creditor is present and generous. What do I mean by this? To answer this, we have to talk about two creditors to appreciate this passage even more. There are little C creditors and there is a big C creditor. The little C creditors are us. We owe a debt. We are sureties on a debt impossible to pay. We are bound for a debtor's prison worse than the ones in history. There is no amount that we can generate that can cover it, no matter how hard we try. And that payment is for the sin, uh, the payment of sin, which is death. Where did we sign the surety? Well, Genesis 3 says, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will will be opened and you will be like God. The impossible debt was us trying to be like God. And Adam and Eve signed that agreement and doomed us all to indebtedness. And they knew that right away. Genesis 3 goes on to say, Then the eyes of both were opened. They both knew in the moment right after the juice of the fruit crossed their lips. This is why Pascal writes of a God-shaped vacuum in all of us. That day in the garden, we removed God from our lives because we thought that we could fill that void. How foolish. Jesus is the ultimate surety. Thank God for the big C creditor. It may seem hopeless that there is an impossible debt to pay, but in that same moment, When the reality of their transgression was seeping into Adam and Eve's souls, God yet said payment, undeserved payment, would come. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The words from God. This was undeserved. God had said if they took that fruit, then death was the result. And he did separate them from himself by driving them out of the garden, separation being what death means. But he didn't kill them immediately as he could have. In his curse, he showed the way he was going to be the surety of that impossible debt. He shall bruise your head. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved. Grace is an undeserved gift. So Paul is saying, by an undeserved gift, we are saved. That gift is the surety that God has no obligation to fulfill, and yet he does. That's why I love uh, Tolkien's idea of a eucatastrophe, a good sudden turn, as the definition is, a good catastrophe in his writing. I nerded out over this definition of eucatastrophe from the Tolkien Gateway Online, which defines it this way. A eucatastrophe is a massive turn in fortune from a seemingly unconquerable situation to an unforeseen victory, usually brought by grace rather than heroic effort. Such a turn is catastrophic in the sense of its breadth and surprise and positive in that a great evil or misfortune is averted. That's what happened. 
when God paid the surety of ours that he didn't need to through Christ. A massive turn in fortune, a seemingly unconquerable situation. He's dead. He was supposed to be the king. He's dead. Imagine that moment for the disciples. Everything was dark. And then he said, Mary, and everything changed. Jesus' life, death, and especially his resurrection were the catastrophe, the unexpected surety for our debt of death. Now, did Jesus know what he was getting into? Remember, wisdom is knowledge rightly exercised. Did he know? Well, that's kind of a rhetorical question. He's got. Of course he knew what he was going what was going down. I love that moment in John when Jesus is standing, beaten, bleeding, practically stripped of his clothes, standing in front of the Roman governor Pilate, who is wrestling with whether he should have Jesus crucified or not. And he's frustrated. He's frustrated by Jesus' silence in the face of false accusations. And he says to Jesus in John 10, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And as you read this, you read Jesus' response as he finally breaks his silence before Pilate. You can almost see Jesus blink and a wry smile kind of fall across his bleeding face as he says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Imagine what Pilate just thought. Well, what? I can let you go. I'll crucify you. Nah, you're, you've been given this authority. I mean, just imagine Pilate going, what are you You're saying I don't have any authority. You've given me that? Anyway, just can't imagine what was rolling in Pilate's mind at that particular point. I can almost hear Jesus in his mind going, oh, Pilate, Pilate, this moment was foretold from the very beginning. I'm about to crush the serpent's head. So I want to ask this question in relation to Jesus being our surety. Are are we strangers or are we brothers in this case? As we talked about earlier, this passage in Proverbs talks about strangers and it talks about neighbors, but um, brought up brother, the difference between a stranger, whether they have untoward intentions or not, and then brothers. So are we a stranger or are we brother? Well, no, no, it's worse. It's worse, Becky. We were enemies. <laughs> we were neither strangers nor brothers or sisters. We were enemies. Romans 5 Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now we have now received reconciliation. Our creditor is so generous that he was a surety for his enemies. 
How do we practice that? Well, that takes a lifetime. Let me give you some practical conclusions. Let us grow in our exercising of wisdom when living our lives in this decidedly dark and growing darker world continues. Let us help each other grow in exercising this wisdom. And that means getting the most powerful book of wisdom in the world, the Bible. Let us encourage one another to get in the Bible, get in the Word. That's why we have the microgroups. You aren't in one, start one. Get together with a few others. You don't need one of us leaders. The Word of God can lead. It is living and active. So sit down with your significant other, your spouse. Sit down with a couple of friends. Wrestle through these questions, these passages. Wisdom is found here. This word we read and teach and dialogue over, let it compel you to not be afraid about talking about anything in this world, physical or spiritual. There is a reason it is thousands of years old and still influential. Recently came across um, a short little part of an interview that Jordan Peterson was talking. He was talking about the, the significance of the Bible in Western literature. Not just any Western literature. He was actually arguing all literature. That it is fundamental. It is the word, the Bible. Jordan Peterson was saying this. So, don't be afraid to talk about anything. Not even climate change or wokeness. We shouldn't be afraid to talk about this stuff. Why? The truth isn't changing. Let's throw wokeness at the truth. Let's throw climate change. Let's throw, pick your, pick your uncomfortable subject. Let's throw it at the truth. See what happens. I bet you the truth will remain that way. I'm suspecting that some of the ideas would adjust. Next practical conclusion. Treat your brothers and sisters in Christ as such. Help me do, do, do this. Uh, don't spurn the stranger who crosses your path, but practice growing in a relationship with them. I mean, do it's easier with brothers and sisters, but... You need to help me. I'm, I'm not very good with strangers. But we should do this wisely as well. Let us help each other wisely to meet the needs of both the stranger and the brother and sister and the widow and the orphan. And lastly, take time this week Uh, even weekly, to truly think about and meditate on the reality of this big C creditor and what he did for us. That is not a, a shallow or insignificant thing. And it is the fuel of the reality of the gospel in our lives here and now. That should be the taproot in our souls. While we were still sinners, 
while we were not strangers, not brothers, while we were enemies of God, God, Christ, died and rose again for us. Let that hover. That should change our lives. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for being our uh, our eucatastrophe. I, I can't imagine that that moment uh, when your followers saw you die and then had to spend time thinking about how everything was lost. Their hopes were dashed. And yet, Lord, help us to think about that moment when as Mary was crying because someone had stolen her teacher's body, <laughs> you were right there and you said her name. That is a beautiful, powerful moment. And that is the eucatastrophe. All darkness went away in that moment. And now you offer that to us. And we try to live that out. As we try to offer that to strangers, to brothers, to orphans, to widows, to those in need. Help us to become better at it. Help us to become better at it, not only as individuals, but as a community. We are far from perfect, but you are a teacher and we want to walk with you more closely to live in the spirit of that new catastrophe, which is that good turn, good sudden turn. So we love you and thank you for this. And we do pray because of what you did 2,000 years ago in your name. Amen. All right. Uh, there's the catechism question. In the New City Catechism, um, there in the bulletin. Question eight. What is the law of God stated in the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give testimony. You shall not covet.